Alright. Hello and welcome to New York Update. I'm Jake Jacobs, your host. I am a New York City school teacher and we cover education, New York State news, and we're gonna do a little bit of national news today. We are streaming live here at rocklandworldradio.com. If you're uh, in the mood to uh, look us up on Facebook, we're at nyupdate.org. That'll bring you right to the Facebook page. You can go to rocklandworldradio.com to hear us live every Tuesday at 7. And there's a chat room feature there too. So if you're listening live, you can just log into the chat. There, besides all that, there is also a call-in line, 845-353-2910. And yeah, starting with the Oakland teacher strike, it's now in its fourth day. We, just a couple weeks ago, had a long protracted uh, strike in Los Angeles that ended well for teachers. And about a couple of days ago, just yesterday, they announced that the Denver teacher strike uh, had ended. That was also considered a win for teachers. They accepted an improved compensation package. Right now, the Oakland teachers are in their fourth day of a strike. It's getting interesting because the teachers are not just necessarily striking for higher pay, uh, better working conditions for themselves, um, you know, health benefits. They're actually talking about education reform. They're talking about the funding uh, that the schools are not getting. They're talking about charter schools in a very big way. Uh, the L.A. strike ended up being about a charter school battle in a very big way, which we covered here about three weeks ago. The Oakland teachers are picking that up. You know, Oakland has a lot of uh, low-income areas, and uh, it's, a, it's a big deal because the charter school regime and the standardized testing regime uh, really has been hurting kids in classrooms for quite a while. Teachers have been recognizing that, and now that they're uh, striking and they're demanding better conditions and they're you know making their various demands, they're including this. And hopefully this is going to get uh, bigger and bigger as the campaigning uh, continues across the country for uh, president, for Senate, for the House, for local legislative seats. You know, the uh, educators are uh, really standing up for the students, and they're really standing up for, you know, just school funding, you know, which is actually standing up for the local districts. They're actually doing the work of the administrators, you know, what, what the principals' union should be doing, and the, uh, you know, and the faculty, like, even, like, lunch ladies, custodians. I mean, schools need funding to operate, you know, and, and operate well. And uh, this is what the, the striking teachers are standing up for in L.A. and in Oakland. Uh, they're talking about class size. They're talking about counseling. This is a really big issue in New York City for 11 years. You know, there's, I saw some very high-needs students and some really, you know, demanding situations. Four years of, teach, of my teaching was in a school exclusively for overage kids in the South Bronx. And um, in that school, counseling was so necessary, and, and it was so crucial to the operation of the school to give kids the help that they need outside of the academic uh, instruction. Um, it, was, it was such an important component, and the school that I worked in had extra full-time counseling staff and so I can I, I so I can tell you you know it really makes a difference to be able to 
you know, have a kid in crisis in a classroom. And to be able to call somebody and get them some help when they need it is really big. And then, you know, we also can't forget clinical help. Some schools have a, have, have a health clinic in the building now, what they call community schools. And that's pretty important, too. You know, what, what, you know it's, it could be physical stuff, like a kid comes in with, you know, pink eye or whatever. But it could also be mental health stuff and, and recognizing, you know, that whatever the problems are in schools are really slowing schools down. They're slowing down the teachers, the other students. They're slowing down everything. People want to get their money's worth, you know, out of their tax dollars, and they want their kids to learn as much as possible. You know, you have to help kids, you know, with whatever their actual needs are. And sometimes it's not academic. Sometimes it's nothing to do with academics. In Oakland, they're recognizing that. You know, they're in their fourth day right now, and it remains to be seen how it'll end up. Um, they are talking about an 8.5% raise over four years, uh, which is probably normal. We got something like that in New York City, phased in over years. You know, it's also um, it's also really big to say, um, yeah, we can't do our job uh, correctly if these classes are, o- are over full. And, uh, you know, 30 kids in a classroom, I'm sorry, it doesn't work. I mean, you know, maybe it worked in the 50s. Uh, it doesn't work today. Um, I mean, you know, it's... It's just a, a version of school that is uh, not efficient, you know, and you don't even have enough seats in the classroom, seats and desks. So that's a really big thing. And so uh, I, would, uh, I would say that I'm 100% behind the Oakland teachers. Uh, we're going to go over the education headlines, and then we're going to get into a little national, state, and local uh, news headlines. We're going to update you for New York here. And starting out, uh, besides the Oakland teacher strike, is we have um, an interesting dynamic uh, that's uh, going on in New York with the um, teacher evaluations, teacher evaluation law uh, that was passed by the Assembly and Senate. Um, We reported on this extensively, so we're following up, and that bill is still waiting for Governor Cuomo's signature. I'm not sure if there's some kind of problem or holdup with the bill. I think if it's not signed after a certain number of days, it has to actually go back to the Senate, and then they send it back to the uh, governor. Um, But uh, they're waiting for Governor Cuomo to sign it, and what that will change is that will enable every school district in New York State to negotiate between their teachers and their board of education and their school board what is going to be used to evaluate teachers. Currently, we have a crazy system um, that uh, is based on common core state tests under a different name. And then those state tests are so invalid and so um, developmentally inappropriate that they're under a moratorium. And so we're giving state tests. You know, this starts on um, April 1st that we're going to have the English exam, two days. And then uh, May 1st is going to be two days of math exams. So you're, you might be asking, why are we giving the tests if they're contested for being invalid and they're in, currently in a state moratorium? 
Good question. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but in order to evaluate teachers, they have to give another set of tests, and those are called the uh, local exams, or the uh, in New York City, they're called the MOSLs, and those are given um, at different times of the year. It takes a lot of time to prep the kids for the test, administer the test, score the test. I mean, what a rigmarole. And so we're uh, right now waiting um, uh, for Governor Cuomo to sign the bill. Once he does, we can start negotiations between uh, union officials, union leaders, um, in all 700 and something districts in New York State, and they can, uh, you know, make their case that they do not want um, a student exam, whether it's the state test or the quote-unquote local tests, um, to be included in teacher evaluations. Um, you know, I'm a teacher. I'm willing to be evaluated. I'm willing to be evaluated on how I do in class. I'm willing to, you know, be on the hook. But, folks, I'm not willing to be uh, evaluated based on math or English scores. And I'm an art teacher. And for ever since 2013, I've been evaluated. Uh, 50% of my teacher evaluation goes into a matrix which is based on a score generated from a math exam. And it's been as ridiculous as it sounds uh, for years. So we're trying to get away from that. Um, I was happy to see that uh, New York State Senator Alexand Alessandra Biaggi um, linked my article about this um, on the New York State Senate website. Um, there is a New York State we Senate website, and they have um, links for different topics. One of the topics is evaluations, uh, teacher evaluations. And she linked the article up there, um, and she highlighted this quote. Quote, and perhaps the new crop of progressive lawmakers now up in Albany will lead efforts to improve the status quo. State Senators Ramos, uh, that's uh, Jessica Ramos, Robert Jackson, Zellner Myrie, Rachel May, Alessandra Biaggi, and James Scoofus have all indicated opposition to the state's obsession with testing. It's possible we may see legislation to actually reduce testing and open hearings where teachers, parents, and experts can testify instead of the private deals negotiated as part of the big annual budget bill. So thank you to uh, Alessandra Biaggi for highlighting that quote and putting that on the New York State Senate website. I really do hope that these this influx of new progressive state senators um, does introduce legislation to reduce standardized testing. Um, with that said, I do have to um, explain uh, something that only an education policy nerd uh, or geek like myself would have noticed, but um, I actually went into the uh, video of the state senate hearing when they passed this new evaluation bill. And I noticed something that I hadn't seen reported anywhere, uh, but it actually happened. Uh, what happened is that um, as the new Democratic majority was um, getting ready to pass the bill and state senators were getting up there and making individual speeches, they were talking about the bill. And a lot of the uh, state senators, like Robert Jackson, got up there and he said that he was going to vote for the bill, but that it didn't go far enough and that they wanted to see um, you know, further legislation, and they wanted to continue the discussion and, con and continue the ball rolling and moving forward to kind of back off of these, this testing program that hasn't worked and the evaluations that have not worked. Um, and then 
um, as you know, there was maybe four or five different state senators that all spoke about the need to do more. Jessica Ramos spoke. Julia Salazar spoke. Um, and she, you know, she's a democratic socialist, just like um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And so she's an interesting New York state senator to watch. Um, and she actually uh, brought up uh, the alternative in New York state that we could be using, something called uh, performance-based assessments, or PBATs, um, which have been um, in use in about 30 New York schools, New York City schools, for uh, about 20 years and have led to better outcomes, particularly for alternative schools. Um, and so there she is up on the Senate floor saying, why don't we explore something like this consortium of schools using these alternative assessments? So good for her. But, um, you know, and so we also heard um, Jamal T. Bailey. We also heard uh, Robert Jackson. Uh, a number of state senators got up and spoke. And, you know, they said they're voting for the bill, but that they had reservations because it didn't go far enough. With all that, the Republicans then had their turn. And they actually introduced an amendment that would have gone much further. Um, they introduced an amendment that would have completely repealed the evaluations regulation. They would have completely repealed the law that's called APPR, uh, Annual Pro Professional Performance Review. And the funniest thing, all these Democrats who were just, you know, talking about the bills and saying they're going to vote for it but it doesn't go far enough, did not vote for this amendment that would have went farther. Um, this amendment, in my opinion, was great. It sounded perfect. It said it would completely eliminate um, the, uh, the evaluation law, and it would actually prevent um, districts from using it. You would not have to collectively bargain. It would just be gone. And then what you would actually collectively bargain instead would be what is going to replace it. And that sounded like a great amendment to me. Um, it was introduced by an upstate state senator, a Republican by the name of Betty Little, and it also had support from um, a senator by the name of James Tedes Tedisco, uh, and these are all Republicans that happen to be good on education. I know they're the party of Trump. I know that's awkward, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, in New York, um, there is a there is a huge outcry against the standardized tests, against the Common Core, against charter schools, privatization, and it's not just in Democratic quarters and progressive quarters. It's in Republican quarters too. I mean, for God's sakes, half of Long Island is refusing to take this test for the last four years, and I can't wait to see what's going to happen in a couple of weeks. You know, when the uh, test refusals happen this year. So um, I'm going to be probably uh, putting together an article about this. I don't know if it's going to be in the progressive. That's more of a national um, blog or newspaper, whatever they call it. It's actually a printed magazine still, but uh, my uh, my education blogs uh, are my posts are not in the printed version because education is just a. I guess, insignificant subset of the real news that nobody, it's not sexy enough. Um, but, you know, it's important to teachers, important to students, important to parents, and it should be important to taxpayers if people are paying attention. 
So uh, that's an issue uh, to keep an eye on, the, the teacher evaluation thing. Um, they passed the law. It's waiting for the governor to sign. Um, everybody seems to agree that we need to go further. Um, I don't know, you know what will happen later on this session because they're going to try and do health care. They're going to try and do a number of other things, which we're going to speak about. Um, and it might get lost in the shuffle. So this really might have been the the first best chance to you know to improve the law and the democrats awkwardly the democrats failed to uh, pass an amendment that was put forward that would have that would have gone you know pretty far it would have it would have been uh, i believe uh, you know a good policy um, some people that i was talking to are explaining to me that a lot of this is just a partisan reflex uh, that when the Republicans introduce an amendment, the Democrats automatically vote against it. And it might be that they haven't actually done their homework and researched it. It might be that the Republicans have not done a good job of alerting everybody to the fact that they were going to be introducing an amendment and that, uh, you know, to make sure that everybody reads it and make sure everybody, you know, either they read it themselves or they have an aide read it and underline all the good parts. Um, so, um, so it's possible that this was actually just done to embarrass the Democrats, to put something up there that was good, have them not vote for it, and then hold that against hold it against them later. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, later that day, which was uh, January 23rd, um, we saw uh, one of the co-sponsors of the Republican amendment, Senator Griffo, I think his name is Joseph Griffo, um, put out a article in the local Rome, New York newspaper. Um, Richard, you know where Rome is? I have no idea where Rome is. Nobody knows who, where Rome is. It's upstate somewhere. It's in Italy. It's in Italy. Not that Rome. Uh, yeah, we have Florida, New York. We have uh, all these. Uh, we have Rome, New York. We have all these uh, uh, exotic places in New York, and they're really small town areas. So in the Rome, New York paper, they did... Um, they did explain that an amendment was offered. Uh, it was voted down by the Democrats. It actually got 17 I votes, and I don't know how that breaks down. I'm assuming that all the Republicans that co-sponsored the bill voted for it, and maybe a few other Republicans, but uh, Democrat, both Democrats and Republicans did not vote I for it, and the bill uh, failed. So later on that day, Senator Griffo goes out and makes hay over this in the local Rome newspaper, you know, saying, hey, I'm listening to the opt-out parents. I'm listening to the parents that are upset over this teacher evaluation law, and we're trying to get rid of it. But it's the Democrats that are not listening. And similarly, Senator John Flanagan, who is, was the majority leader in the Senate up till January 9th, and now he's the minority leader in the Senate, but we still respectfully call him Leader Flanagan because he's the minority leader. Uh, he also put out a statement. I think was a little propaganda-ish. Um, he put a statement, and it's on the New York State Senate website, so that's nice that he can just post anything there. Um, which is his opinion, but he said that the Democrats prevented a bill from passing which would have, uh, which would have eliminated high-stakes testing. Now, that's not what the amendment would have done. The amendment would have eliminated the APPR, which is the Evaluations Regulation, and nothing in that bill would have 
eliminated high-stakes testing. So it seems pretty obvious that Leader Flanagan was just going out and uh, on the web and uh, you know to bash the Democrats, embarrass them, and try to win over the you know pro public education parents. Um, Flanagan himself is from Long Island, so he's right from you know the hotbed of opting out and standardized testing. Um, and you know I think this is politics, but I am learning. Um, a little bit about you know why you know how and why the Democrats ended up voting against a really good amendment, and so uh, that little chapter we're going to follow up on. I'll probably uh, write up an article uh, next week about that and submit it to uh, City Limits, where I write um, sometimes. Uh, city Limits is uh, the CityLimits.org is the website associated with WNYC. <clears throat> All right, another issue. Um, while we're on the New York State Senate, is uh, and we're and we have a clip to play here. Um, is Robert Jackson, the New York State Senator, elected for the first time, even though he's been in the New York City Council for over ten years? And he was one of uh, going back to 1993. He was uh, the lead plaintiff in the campaign for fiscal equity case. Um, that is a case where New York's highest court in 2006 ruled that the state owes public schools about $4 billion in school aid that they're not getting. And Governor Andrew Cuomo has recommended that the school aid be increased by far less, which is a nice way of saying he refuses to raise taxes on millionaires and billionaires to give court-ordered funding to the neediest schools around the state. So, Robert Jackson was in an interview with WXXI, Karen DeWitt, interviewing him, and we're going to play the clip now. He was the lead plaintiff in the Campaign for Fiscal Equity case, which began in 1993. He and other Democrats in the legislature who agree with him aren't giving up the fight, and he says he's even willing to hold up the budget to win the school aid. Here's an excerpt of that interview. So do you think the governor is playing the usual budget game here, lowballing education, knowing that the legislature traditionally restores it and that will keep you guys occupied so you're not bothering with other you know, policy matters or issues that he doesn't want you to bother with? You know, our governor is a master at classic divide and conquer. I've heard upstate versus downstate, rich versus poor, urban versus city, a rural versus city. The bottom line is that every child, no matter where they live, and based on the testimony of all of the, the superintendents from Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, the BOCES, and small rural districts, everyone is clamoring to give them what they're entitled to under the law. That's what they want. Now, I want to ask you about something else that the governor's been saying the last couple of years. And he's mm-hmm. saying the issue isn't that there's not enough money being given to schools. He's saying it's the fault of the individual districts, like New York City, Rochester, <laughs> Buffalo, that you're laughing already before Classic I even lay this out, where he's saying that it's the districts that are starving their poorest schools in their districts. The districts that are starving? No. As a mother, would you starve your child? The answer is No. The governor is playing classic divide and conquer. He's saying, you know, that the state has given them the money. You know, people ask me, where are we going to get the $4 billion that owed to the New York State children? And my response, it's in the budget. The money is already there. We're not asking for anything new. 
We're only asking to give our kids what they're entitled to under the Constitution of New York State. There is one one wrinkle in what you're talking about. The governor announced um, a few days ago that there's a $2.3 billion budget gap because the tax receipts are down. Is that going to throw a wrench into education funding and other parts of the budget? Well, I think that, you know, when the governor can spend uh, billions of dollars in the Buffalo billions, and we know what happened there as far as indictments and convictions and what have you, when the governor and uh, our mayor can give $3 billion to Amazon. Where there's a will, there's a way. So would you be willing or advocate to hold up the budget if you don't get the education aid money that you and certainly your colleagues, the other Senate Democrats, I think agree with you on this, that, that you should get? It is so important that we fix this mess. And the only way we're going to fix this mess if we come to an agreement, and you know what the region says, $2.2 $2.2 billion, and then phase in the rest over the two or three years. I think that's very reasonable. We're not asking for $4 billion in one shot. So if he's willing to sit down and talk, we can work it out. And if he's not, we have to do what we have to do. I know what I will do because I'm fighting for our children. I claim to be the father of not only the 1. million children in New York City, but I'm there fighting for all of the children no matter where they live in New York State. And you would do what? You said you know what you would do. If necessary to vote no on the budget, even if I have to stand up by myself and say that, I would do it. I'm not afraid. Senator Robert Jackson. So he's really the first one to step into the breach. Um, When the budget is fought over in New York State, uh, it's traditionally been kind of like a backroom thing where the Assembly and the Senate leadership get together with the governor and they kind of hammer out all the details. They go back and forth with the members, right, the state senators that represent every district, kind of uh, negotiate and they say, uh, you know, I'll give you this if you give me that. So when a state senator goes public, when they're saying something, you know, like this, like, um, I will not vote for any budget that does not include full funding, you know, for the uh, needy schools, which is called the CFE funding, they're, they're actually going on a limb because it prevents them from having their negotiating tactic to take that away. I mean, you, you know, you're, you're kind of painting yourself into a corner. But that is how strongly uh, Robert Jackson feels about this issue. Now, here in Rockland County, uh, David Carlucci has also received pressure to say the same thing, uh, to go public on some TV show or radio show and say somewhere where the governor will hear it, I will not vote for any budget that does not fully fund the Campaign for Fiscal Equity, you know, which is otherwise known as Foundation Aid. You know, it was something that I asked Senator Carlucci right here on the show. And subsequently, other uh, community members started asking him. I know that Mondaire Jones and the East Ramapo group that have been fighting for uh, funding for East Ramapo uh, have asked Senator Carlucci to do the same. And really, it's every New York State senator that could say the same thing. The difference is that some senators 
are representing districts that have the high need schools in them, and some senators are representing you know wealthy districts. Imagine the sta- a senator from Long Island or uh, Bedford, uh, Westchester. You know they don't have those high needs schools there. And certainly, Andrea Stewart Cousins. You should be pressured to say, you know, we won't approve any budget that doesn't fund the schools. Um, Senator Gennaris, who's the number two in the leadership, um, Alessandra Biaggi, it would be nice if she did it because she's one of the leaders of the new progressive movement. Senator Rachel May up in Syracuse, Senator Jessica Ramos, Senator Julia Salazar, Senator Zellner Myrie, Senator Shelley Meyer, who is the head of the Senate Education Committee. All of those people, if they would, were to join in with Robert Jackson and stand together with him, it would have a multiplicative effect because, as Senator Jackson said in his interview, the governor likes to divide and conquer, and he's very effective at doing that. And, you know, he can take any state senator and snap his fingers and give them some kind of goodie to try to get them to turn against their colleagues on an issue like this. And so, you know, that's how the governor does it. He has sweeteners and he sweetens things up. Now, Senator Jackson did say that the money is in the budget. But when it comes to uh, the $3 billion that Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo uh, quote-unquote gave to Amazon or offered to give to Amazon, that wasn't actually a give. That was actually going to be a write-off of tax payments that Amazon would have made had they set up that big campus facility there. The actual giving uh, from, the st- of the, from the state to Amazon would have been about $500 million, which is a, a lot of money. It's a half a billion dollars. He was talking about $2 billion as a starting point for the first year and then uh, you know pay the rest in out years. So it's a lot of money, and it would need a better explanation of where the money would be coming from. Part of that money very easily could come from restoring the millionaire's tax. But as we've said on this show, the governor is reticent to do that because a lot of multimillionaires and billionaires can just, uh, with a snap of their finger, change their residency on paper and deny New York State lots of money. We spoke about one hedge fund manager that paid $150 million in taxes because he earned, you know, like $2 billion that year. So, uh, you know, it's big numbers, big numbers that we're talking about. But there is, where there is a will, there is a way, and it could be paid for. Okay? Uh, we'll get back to that issue uh, in, in a, little, a little more depth um, in the upcoming weeks. We are going to pivot from that to um, a slightly related bill. Um, the two state senators from Queens and I believe overlapping Brooklyn area have introduced a sex worker decriminalization bill. So this would be Senator Jessica Ramos, who we interviewed on the show, and Senator Julia Salazar, uh, who I just mentioned earlier. Um, And they had a very interesting proposal that would have decriminalized sex work for sex workers um, who are, you know, who they point out are overwhelmingly impoverished people of color, um, LGBTQ uh, people, uh, people that are uh, in desperate situations. I mean, if you think about like how many people actually want to sell their body, 
how many people actually want to do that and ha enjoy that, um, it's probably not as many as people that are doing it because they desperately need the money and would actually probably prefer not to do that. Um, you know, especially with all of the uh, unintended consequences of diseases and violence and, you know, God, it's just like, you know, such a terrible world to have to delve into. They just kind of made this announcement uh, yesterday was the first day I saw it. And, um, and whenever they do offer you know, some kind of sexual, you know, favors for money. What this would do would be to protect the workers. And I don't know whether it would protect the customers or protect the um, establishment. In fact, I think, um, you know, one of the reasons that they're doing this is to prevent sex trafficking. And in that case, you know, the massage parlor owners that force women to, you know, have sex with cu customers are probably the sex traffickers, especially if they transported their workers over any kind of state lines. So that's a bill that we're going to keep an eye on that hasn't gotten really big media attention yet. Yeah, here in New York, we are seeing some new election rules. And right now is actually the beginning today is actually the beginning of the petitioning so that anybody running for office in New York State in this November's election or the primaries that come before have to get a certain number of signatures on the petitions. And those people might be knocking on your doors uh, any day now because it started today. Because this, this date was moved up from June all the way till today, February 26th, that's a huge difference. I just heard that they actually changed the rules so that uh, people do not have to gather as many uh, signatures as they needed to. So if you're thinking about running for office, this might be the year uh, to do it because you do not have to get as many signatures as usual and your opponents on the other side might be kind of caught off guard because the elections have been moved forward so much. We um, we also, uh, I also, I actually have petitions for the Democrats, and uh, I can tell you that uh, there's going to be some interesting races here. Even though it's an off year, uh, we have the DA race here, and we spoke about that a little bit. We have our local assemblyman here in Rockland County, Ken Zabrowski, Jr., uh, is running for district attorney, and it's a five-way race right now against an experienced prosecutor named... Uh, Patricia Gunning, a judge by the name of uh, Victor Alfieri, and the so-called block candidate, somebody that seems to be enjoying the support of the Hasidic concentration of voters that the rabbi orders to vote all together in lockstep. And uh, his name is Walsh, I believe Bob Walsh or Bill Walsh, and I'm sorry that I don't have his first name. The other uh, curveball in this race, or oddball in this race is a guy by the name of Mike Diedrich who announced his candidacy and he did file paperwork and he appeared on February 21st which is just a couple days ago at the Rockland County Democratic Committee and we're going to play some audio of what happened uh, it's going to be a little bit eye-opening, but listen closely to what he says and what he's proposing to do running for district attorney of Rockland County. That democracy is failing in that community. The cause will be clear. The lack of basic education in American civics and how... 
So let me just interrupt. What he's talking about, because I had to press the record button after seeing what he was saying, and the outrage of the people in the audience just jumped in midstream. But what he's talking about, and what he's singularly talking about, ultra-Orthodox yeshivas do not provide a sound basic education, a a basic uh, secular education in math and English and sciences to their students. Now, we're not talking about every yeshiva. Uh, We're talking about some, but I do understand it is a significant proportion of them. And so it is a legitimate issue, but this candidate clearly goes overboard. And let's listen in. Democracy works. The children who are denied a basic education are confined in an intellectual cage, like a, like a physical cage. This is abuse. I will prosecute such crime in the Ramapo Justice Courts before an entirely or mostly, or, or mostly Jewish jury. I will then win and ask the court to slap a fine on the, on the yeshiva administrators. Okay, so what, so what he just said is outrageous. He said he would prosecute them. There's actually no official cro- law on the books that they're breaking. What they're actually doing is violating state education policy, in which case they could be charged with educational neglect. But the terms that he's using are, are outrageous. He's saying that he would prosecute you know, yeshivas or rabbis for intellectual abuse there there's no such law and he said he would uh, ask for fines let's listen to see how far how much farther he goes and then seek to close the school my goal is to protect the children right so he also said he would close the school and folks that's not what the people in the yeshivas want the people in the yeshivas want to stay in those schools. However, they want the schools to offer the fundamentals like English and math and science so that the kids, when they grow up, can get a good job. But they are a very, very close-knit community, and you know they're actually you know, closer than other communities because they are in generational sects. S-E-C-T-S, generational sects um, that kind of like move together as a group and they want to be together and they practice religion together and they're very, you know, uh, closely tied to each other. So here is Mike Dietrich threatening to close down the schools, which is not the remedy that the community is actually asking for. They have the right, their own individual right. They're not the property of their parents and they're not the property of of their religious group. They have their own individual rights to a decent education. <laughs> Government must protect them. And that is the only reason I'm running and chose to run this election. Okay, so here he says that the, uh, the children, uh, the Hasidic children, are not the property of their parents. Richard, did you feel like you were property of your parents growing up? I sh- no. <laughs> I mean, when you're a kid, you really are under the control and the auspices of the parents. They make all of your legal decisions and they choose your school. I mean, until you're older, <laughs> you, I mean, you know, certainly by the age of 18, but maybe even, you know, 15, 16, you're still a minor and, you know, the parents make all the decisions. Are you the property of your parents? I mean, what a... What an angle to run for district attorney on. So here's where it really starts to go bad for this candidate. If a Hasidic man or woman seeks a better education for their children, perhaps in the public schools, 
and are shunned and ostracized by the Hasidic leadership for this, I'll prosecute that too. It's That's a not of harassment a violation of the coercion. law. Racketeering under the guise of religion must stop. Religious orthodoxy does not license illegality. I reveal the sword of the prosecutor to protect Hasidic women and children against the Hasidic leadership that seeks authoritarian control over its members. I will protect individuals and fight organizational abuse. The Hasidic leadership is an abusive organization when it comes to keeping its members inadequately educated and isolated from the larger American society. It's not American. We're a melting pot in our society. The Hasidic leadership's views are totalitarian and tribalism. Tribalism is destructive to democracy. I've learned this as a civil rights lawyer from traveling around the world, from being in combat zones, and from looking around the country today, Trump and company, most tribal of all, aren't they? It's tribalism, people. As Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders has observed, quote, the ideological struggle of the 21st century pits liberal democratic peoples everywhere against illiberalism at home and abroad. What, the bigotry? Is there a time limit for bigotry? We had enough of this already. And just as President... And just as... And just as... And just as... And just as President Trump... And just as President Trump... You agree with me? Turn your back. And just as... And just as President Trump... Did you leave your white hood at home? And, and just as President Trump is a Okay, and so it goes on from there, as you can see, and he is eventually uh, booed off the stage or the podium. And, you know, it, it really made me think, like, who is this guy? Why is he doing that? It's almost as if, and it's almost like a false flag where he is taking a controversial issue and then he's presenting it in such an unreasonable way to make it sound perhaps like anybody that takes that side, that takes that view, is unreasonable? Is he planting himself there on purpose to seem like anybody that is questioning the yeshiva's right to ignore secular education is is, is a bigot? Um, is unreasonable. I mean, clearly this guy is unhinged, but I'm not so sure what his motivation is. You know, he seemed like he was very well credentialed, but, you know, as you heard, um, he attacked the religious community and he said what they were doing is illegal. It's actually not illegal. It might violate some regulations, but it's not a criminal matter. Going after the, uh, you know, a community like that, you really have to be sensitive because, you know, the um, Hasidic community, as it is, they claim anti-Semitism at the drop of a hat. And you saw it here. I mean, there was uh, there were women that uh, stood up and turned their back while he was talking. But he kept going on and on. Um, he was quoting um, everybody from FDR to JFK to Bernie Sanders. He was he was comparing the Hasids to um, to President uh, Trump's you know devoted followers and saying that they're cult like, you know. And um, you know, it's just it's just not the kind of 
common language, political language, that a sensible candidate uses when you're in a mixed crowd and you have to understand the sensibilities of people. I mean, if I would have gone up there, I would have said, okay, you know, I believe, you know, Hasis are great and they love their kids and they really want the best, but they're violating the New York State standards. They have to provide you know, 45 minutes a day of, of English, science, mathematics, and, you know, that's black and white. You know, that's a law on the books. No judgment, you know, but let's get them to comply and that's that's the issue. What he was saying was that he, that he would arrest the rabbis. You know, he said there that, you know, he felt uh, that they're purposely doing this to indo- indoctrinate their uh, young people to wall them off from society. And that, folks, is just not the way how you go about persuading a community to, to right a wrong, you know, by attacking them. You will get immediately uh, called a bigot, um, a racist, anti-religious, uh, anti-Semitic, and uh, that's, that's exactly what happened. I'll give you a little more flavor uh, before we check out, just to show you how ridiculous this got as it went on and on. people's fears and prejudices, so too the Hasidic it's it seems to keep people. If you want to discuss about ideas, you should have a discussion. It's not a discussion. Let me make clear, as Mr. Attorney, I will protect the cynics and the families of constitutional anti-Semitism and hate crimes. I will only fight what is destructive to Hasidic children and American society. A grossly insufficient secular education is destructive. So what do you think, folks? Is this a stunt? Eventually, somebody sensible grabbed his microphone and took it away. Yeah, it was an outrage. And the the little Hasidic cluster of people in the back, they were videotaping this, and I'm sure that they were sharing that, you know, to outrage their constituents and their congregation. It was train wreck. And I don't know why anybody would spend their time and energy to run f- uh, for a position, uh, m- you know, and go out and you know, <laughs> make such a splash. I mean, I understand some people want to uh, be issues-oriented candidates and they want to publicize one issue. They're not really realistically thinking that they're going to win. I mean, certainly this guy didn't think he was going to beat experienced prosecutors or the sitting assemblyman, Ken Zabrowski, you know, uh, candidates that have a lot of uh, backing. Uh, we heard, uh, I heard yesterday, well, I just saw this on Twitter, so I can't confirm it, but the Walsh guy who got the backing of the uh, Hasidic community was also endorsed by the Republicans. So the Republicans are actually not running a candidate in this race and crossing over to um, endorse the uh, Democrat that is the uh, so-called block pick or the uh, Hasidic, ultra-Orthodox Hasidic community pick, you know, and they're just voting in their best interest. They feel that, you know, this person has their ear or that, you know, would not be so aggressive in uh, pursuing maybe the yeshiva issue or maybe the housing and zoning issues and all of the different issues that uh, come up because in Rockland County, we are one of the flashpoints where uh, the ultra-religious, very highly concentrated ultra-religious community 
is um, in some ways taking advantage of zoning regulations, building giant houses. They have these kind of weird dormitory rules where you can be in religious study for 13 years and have a family living with you in these, you know, so-called dormitories. And it's kind of like a never-ending religious degree that you're pursuing. And that somehow crosses over into education in a way I don't understand, but you get like enormous tax breaks and you get to you know, live a lifestyle of, uh, you know, religious pursuit and religious study. There's also very high incidences of public assistance in these communities. Uh, the fa- and the families are extremely large, you know, which there's no problem with, except, you know, if you can't support your own family and you have to reach out for public assistance, it's not a sustainable system. And, you know, at some point, the people that are paying more in than they're receiving are going to complain. And that might actually be, you know, their own neighbors. It might be people within their own community, you know, paying more and supporting a lot of people. But this uh, DA candidate really made a terrible showing. And from what I understand, he was going back out, continue to do these type of, of events. So let's pivot a little bit towards the national. Um, tomorrow, there's going to be a very huge TV event as Michael Cohen Trump's former attorney is going to be on every TV set in this country uh, tomorrow. I believe it starts at like, uh, he's going to be testifying uh, against Donald Trump in public house judiciary committee, I believe, hearings. You know, he's ready to spill the beans on insurance fraud, on payments to uh, porn stars, hush money payments, a a lot of interesting things. So this is going to be salacious and scandalous, and Michael Cohen is going to be attacked himself. That's all going on. Anywhere you look, all you see is AOC. That's all you see nowadays. It's just nonstop Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's just nonstop mentions of her, nonstop bashing of her. There's memes online all day that, you know, compare her to a donkey. They say that, you know, she doesn't have a brain in her head, that the Green New Deal will never work. Um, You're saying, you know, not just these, like, you know, lunatic right-wingers that are just, you know, making fun and they're demeaning her and they're sexualizing her and, you know, they're talking about her appearance. But it's also uh, serious economists. Paul Krugman, I saw Boston Herald, you know, a lot of these uh, op-ed writers, they're all weighing in. You know, most of the corporate media is against the Green New Deal and against her ideas. Uh, They say that we don't have the money to pay for it and it'll never work. But I got to say, when it comes to the environment, that capitalism is what got us to this point right? I mean, at least in the U.S., you know, we practice capitalism and pretty unregulated capitalism ever since the 80s. And that got us to this point. So now we need a fix. We need a, you know, a global emergency crisis fix, you know, and we do need it to be on a massive scale. And we do need, you know, some drastic changes. We need, I agree, to pivot away immediately from fossil fuels, We need, you know, to create jobs with a green economy. The other side has no science on their on their side. You know, they are really fighting the inevitable because science, you know, can prove very easily using the the scientific method that the planet is warming, that it's human caused. You know, we only have a short window to fix the problem. And so right now you're seeing guys like Rush Limbaugh. They're going on the radio and they're saying, Ocasio-Cortez 
thinks she's a goddess. I mean, she is getting so much media attention, and it's because of you, Rush Limbaugh. It's because of Hannity. It's because Fox News. Everybody has embraced her. They put her on the air all day, every day. And granted, they're making fun of her, but everybody knows that you know all publicity is good publicity, and all they're doing is making her a bigger and bigger and bigger household name. So you know, when it comes to when it comes to you know what the actual solutions are, I think it's going to be the entire Democratic Party running on some version of a Green New Deal. You know, it might be a little watered down, but I think everybody agrees that we need to pick up the pace of the transition away from fossil fuels, and that's going to be a hard pill to swallow for the oil industry, the gas industry, the coal industry, for them to just keep it in the ground and forego millions and billions of dollars hundreds of thousands of jobs that you know they've been you know they've had an entire you know energy economy running on so we're looking at a big fight we're looking at a big fight and so uh you know we'll see what happens you know uh certainly AOC is not alone and that brings us to Bernie Sanders who last night was on CNN on a 1 hour town hall and uh he made some very compelling arguments you know in favor of a green economy um but what i thought what stood out to me last night was that uh, bernie spoke out against vietnam war and the iraq war as giant mistakes and when he was asked about his foreign policy he said straight out that he had been fighting those things as an as an activist or as a, a congressperson his entire life and so i think what he said you know that was really important was that whether it's the israelis or the palestinians or whether it's this group or that group you know we have to treat everybody even handedly across the the world you know and when it comes to our venezuela pol- policy or when it comes to anything like that we have to you know be a force for good and, and a force for democracy we need to negotiate with our enemies and we need to try and improve what we have because what we have is kind of like global hegemony slash oligarchy slash kleptocracy slash you know <laughs> what's going on in venezuela it's like basically a, a military coup or a, or a political coup really interesting stuff from bernie sanders we'll talk a little bit more about the democratic race for 2020 and how it's shaping up and you know everybody's got an opinion i think it's great to talk about i hope that the democrats steal all the attention you know for the next 18 months and you know they end up going through a process that ends up with you know a battle-tested candidate who then goes up against Trump and hopefully wins. If you guys want to hear a great recommendation for a podcast, and if you're like me and you really want are trying to understand what's going on with the Mueller probe and really try to follow like day in day out details. I used to recommend a blog called EmptyWheel.net, which is Marcy Wheeler. I still do, but the thing about her is that it's not as kind of like facile for the average person to listen to and make heads or tails of. So there's this great podcast that I've been listening to recently called Muller She Wrote. And it is three comedians and they're you know, they just have kind of like a a snappy banter and snappy patter, but they have one of the most thorough and accurate and methodical ways of presenting what is going on in the Russia collusion investigation and all ancillary tangents on a daily basis. I I really recommend people listen to that podcast because you can learn so much and it's just a very valuable 
use of your time. Again, the podcast is called Muller She Wrote, and it's available on Apple iTunes and Podcasts and Podbean and every little thing. So we're going to leave you with that. If you want to tune in again next week, we're here Tuesday at 7 p.m. My name is Jake Jacobs, and signing off for Rockland World Radio, this has been NYUpdates.org. It's not just radio, it's Rockland World Radio. Rockland World Radio.com.